All right, good morning, everyone. All right, great to have you here this morning. And I uh, want to just share uh, some new news with you. So there was a uh, birth this week, and I think we have a picture for you to see. All right. This one doesn't look a lot different than the other ones we've shown. <laughs> I always think that as it. I know everybody's going to react, but to me, they all look the same from this distance. <laughs> But they are beautiful and they're a gift from God, so we're grateful for that. So this little one belongs to uh, Luke and Jess Sosnovic. So this is the aunt at the uh, keyboard this morning, Jillian. And uh, I don't know if... Yeah. And if you know Clyde and Rita, it's their grandchild, okay? So Luke is their son and uh, little Ava is their new grandbaby. So we're grateful for that. All right, uh, tonight at 6.30 at our house, there is a teen fellowship event, and uh, we just want you to be aware of that. See myself or my wife after the service, and uh, if you need help, directions to be able to get there for that, we can help you with that. If you're visiting with us today for the first time, we have a connections desk right out front. Just feel free to stop there and uh, indicate uh, your desire for any type of contact from anyone on the pastoral team or one of the elders, okay? Here comes grandmom right there. Grandmom and grandpa, can you two just say hi? All right. They look way too young to be grandparents, but they are. Okay. So let's, uh, let's stand together. I want to lead us in a word of prayer, and then we'll go into our time of worship and song this morning. So uh, let's pray together. Father, as we come into your presence this morning, we, uh, we come from all different places, and Lord, as we, we learn week by week, we come from all different experiences, all different circumstances, uh, different stressors in our lives. And, uh, but Lord, there is this consistent need to draw near to you and to find you fulfilling your promise, and I will draw near to you. Uh, so Lord, as, as, as we seek you this morning, we trust in your promise that you come near to us. And as we sing and as we worship together, as we bear our burdens before you in song, uh, Lord, we're proclaiming truths in song that are meant to minister to our hearts and to exalt and glorify you so that we find ourselves seated very carefully and preciously in your presence, aware of who you are, comforted by your presence and your promises. So we trust that you will minister to us this morning by your spirit as we sing your praises. We lift up uh, Diana Kelly before you. We lift up Linda Matthews before you. These are folks, God, that we have continued to pray for. Friends, brother, uh, these friends that have been battling uh, with cancer for a long time, we trust that your hand would be present in a very powerful, supernatural, and healing way in their lives, God. And we pray that you will just continue to reveal yourself to them as they walk through their season of struggle and as they seek you, uh, draw near to them. And uh, for our college students that are headed to uh, a new place and a new experience and a new environment, we trust, God, that you would be uh, just really super present in their lives and that you would be the controlling influence in their lives, that they would find themselves not surrendering to pressure, but surrendering more and more to you. And Lord, in that they will find wisdom and hope and joy. And so we just pray that blessing over them. As we sing your praises this morning, Lord, fill us with the joy and hope of your presence. And we pray for these blessings in the beautiful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, 
Amen. Let's worship him together.
Heavenly Father, this morning we have sung your praises, and Lord, through this beautiful music which you have inspired, Lord, has reminded us that you are indeed a holy God, and we don't need any reminders that we aren't holy, but in your 
and your plan for salvation, Lord, you can look at us as holy through your redeeming blood. And Lord, we would be completely and utterly lost without that. And for that, we give you praise and honor and glory. We thank you, Lord, for providing for that. Heavenly Father, this morning, as your word goes forth, it's our prayer, Lord, that through your Holy Spirit, you would touch hearts that are here. We ask that you would meet needs. And Lord, especially if there are those here, Lord, that do not know your redeeming love, that they would find you today. May that be the case, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Um, this morning's passage that we'll be taking a look at will be from uh, the book of Second Peter, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And just before we begin, I just want you to be um, thinking on the words as we read them, but um, it amazes me, even after all these years, how you can read a verse several times and, and truth just pops out. And we're so blessed um, with our pastors that are able to extract that and, and convey it to us in a in a, in a good manner. So we're thankful for that. Second Peter chapter 2, beginning to read with verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sin, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when they brought the flood, on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desires of the flesh and despise authority. Uh, children, you could be dismissed for junior church. Um, you know, getting an opportunity to uh, preach is a huge uh, responsibility and an awesome privilege, to be honest with you. Um, it's a heavy weight because you stand in a pulpit and you say, in essence, thus says the Lord, you are taking God's word and you're observing what is there, you're interpreting what is there, and then you're trying to apply what is there. And as I look at the congregation right now and those that are watching live stream as well, I am responsible for what I share uh, with you to make sure it's true. 
Now, scripture actually says that we who teach will be judged more strictly um, because we are held responsible for the flocks that God has given us. So I want you to keep that in mind every time I get a chance to preach that's uh, heavy on my heart, um, but even more so today as we look at this passage uh, that Dave just read. I want you to imagine, it's not very hard to imagine given where we have been in the last month with the floods that came through, but I want you to imagine standing on the edge of a town watching uh, the tormental floodwaters coming in uh, to a town. It causes erosion, it causes destruction, and it even takes lives. And then you wonder, how did this devastation actually come to being? Now, the genesis of this calamity happened well upstream. And before that, we, what we are witnessing here, it's happened well upstream. Small actions or neglect that laid the foundation for the disaster that we see in front of us now. Now, similarly, I want you to consider that the era that we live in is full of confusion. It's full of chaos. It is full of corrosion. The world that we live in is increasingly conflict-filled, and maybe you're feeling that every day when you hear words that are said, maybe words around you, or words in the TV or the movies that challenge your faith, they produce conflict in your life. And maybe you wonder, how in the world did we get here? How do we get to a place where the struggles that we have are apparent? Uh, it's interesting, a writer said that there was a series of actions that brought us to this spiritual brink. I really like these. Um, he mentioned that first there's a desensitization, that we're desensitized first. Second, he said that things have become normalized. Third, demonized. Fifth, legalized, or fourth, legalized. Fifth, idealized and then some penalized. So desensitized, normalized, demonized, legalized, idolized, and penalized. These actions really have led to the drift that we have from a Christ-centered, cross-centered, word-centered, spirit-filled God glorifying model that was a bedrock of our lives and a bedrock of our culture that has now eroded. A lot of it, I believe, has come through the media, and a lot of it has come through entertainment, um, Hollywood, and what we see on TV very much every day. Neil Postman wrote a book a couple of decades ago, I believe, and in the book he said that we have a tendency to amuse ourselves to death. And what he was getting at is that this amusement, the entertainment-driven culture has slowly and insidiously reshaped our convictions and clouded our moral compass. And you know, the line between where a devout Christian is and a worldly individual has blurred so much that you do not see a distinct difference between the two, oftentimes. Churchgoers, members, even tragically church leaders are starting to look more like the culture and less like God and Christ. And there's a significant segment of our church that has become so seduced by the American dream that they have redefined the gospel and its tenets. You know, we used to hear Christ alone is the foundation, but now what do we hear? It's Christ plus something, Christ plus wealth, Christ plus health, Christ plus prosperity, Christ plus good work, 
good works. And what ends up happening is that this adulteration of the American, uh, American society has now led into the biblical truth. And our righteousness isn't on the basis of our salvation any longer. It is the, or righteousness that we have is not being shown in our salvation any longer. In fact, it's the worldliness that we see. I want you to think about that, that landscape, that erosion as we look at 2 Peter 1. Now, now Peter has just started chapter 1 by talking about this immense salvation that you have and that God has given you everything that you need for life and godliness. And then he talks about living a life that is going to honor him, step by step adding virtue after virtue so that you look more and more like Christ. He talks about this wonderful salvation and that when you do that, you can confirm your salvation and confirm your election. And then he goes into the fact that Christ is glorified. Peter said, I saw the transfigured Christ. I saw this God who transformed right in front of me. I saw his glory. And that glory that I saw was just a foretaste of the glory that's going to come. And then he talked about the prophetic word. He said it's in that word that God inspired human authors, 40 perhaps human authors over approximately 1,500 years, writing 66 books, inspired those authors to give you his word so you could see the glory. I'm, I'm an eyewitness, Peter said, of his glory, and then I've given you the word. The God has given you the word that is a glory-filled word, Christ-centered, cross-centered, word-centered, spirit-filled God and glorifying But then he begins chapter two with a big but, but. Watch what he says. But false prophets have arose among the people, just like there will be false prophets among you. So I'm gonna look at this passage in four um, lenses. First, the dangerous deception of the false teachers. The dangerous deception of the false teachers. That's verses one through three. Second, we're gonna look at the damning destruction that has happened in the past and that is promised for the future. And that's verses four through eight. Then we're gonna look at the divine deliverance. God's promised deliverance for those that are in him. And then finally, we'll talk about our discerning duty. What are we called to do? So dangerous deception, damning destruction, divine deliverance, and discerning duty. Let's pray as we begin this time. Lord, as I, as I look at this passage, Peter wrote this 2,000 years ago, but he could be writing it today. The chaos, the confusion, the convictions that are there in the world, and believers, at least claiming to be believers, espousing the same things that the world is espousing. It just it doesn't make sense. Believers looking like the world in their morality and their behavior, it doesn't make sense. And Father, Christ is diminished and pushed down in people's eyes. And he's not reverenced and he's not exalted. And Lord, please forgive us for as a body of believers who ever do that in our lives. I pray today that we would start to be able to see what a false teacher looks like. I pray that we would hear the warning of their destruction. I pray that we would bask in the light of your divine deliverance for us. And I pray that we would discern how we are called to live for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Okay, so let's start with uh, the first verse, first three verses. Uh, we're going to be talking about the dangerous deception. And as we look at this dangerous deception, I want you to consider four things about these false prophets. There's probably a lot of things you could pull out of here, but there are four things I want you to consider. Their message, their methods, their morality, and their motives. So let's start with their message. We see it here. It says, the false prophets have arose among the people. So that's the first thing. Now, the book of First Peter was primarily looking at the attacks that were happening outside the church. Here, in Second Peter, he's talking primarily about what's happening within the church, that, that people within our own congregation are espousing things that are godless. And he, he says here that these false prophets are among you, and what they are doing is that they're doing several things. I want you to consider first, they come before you in such a way is that they are speaking lies and deception. It says here that just as these false teachers among you were secretly bringing destructive heresies, now this word heresy is interesting uh, because back in, this, in biblical times, this word heresy, now we think of it as false doctrine and, and godless doctrines, but in this time, this word heresy actually just meant a sect, a faction. It was a small group. So the small group, broken away from the larger group, it was not necessarily destructive at the times, and the fact is it's just separate from our group. But I, I think what Peter is talking about here is even further than just a separation of this group, it is a separation from truth, and you'll see it as we continue here. Because these false prophets, these false teachers, are among us, and they're sowing seeds of destructive heresy. The destruction that they are laying out is a destruction that is attacking the truth, the truth that we are called to guard and to preserve. We'll see that in the book of Jude when we get to that in about a month. And what we have is we've been given the gospel truth and we're called to protect it with all that we have. But what was happening here is that these people were coming in and they were taking elements of the truth and they were sowing seeds of otherworldliness into it and was creating heresy. And what it was doing is that destruction, that message was proclaiming a message of Christ plus or Christ minus in essence. In essence, they were two elements that would happen back in this time. Either there was a legalism that would happen in this culture where people believed that if you followed the law well, God would be happy with you. So legalism, it talked about it as uh, the Pharisees, the Judaizers, all of these type of people. What they did was if you follow the rules, God will be happy with you. Legalism. There's a second element that was in the Christian church of license. And what it was is this, that if you believed in the gospel and if you believe that God has forgiven you of all of your sins and if you believe in his grace, then you could do whatever you want and God will be pleased with you. So you could either follow the rules to make God happy, legalism, or you would do whatever you want, live a lifestyle of whatever you want because you've already been forgiven. And these were the two things that were in the culture, and it's the two things that we have today. You will have churches today that will speak constantly of rules, 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 and not focus on Christ and talk about your behavior as though your behavior earned you heaven. But there are other churches that say you can sin all you want and do whatever you want and God is still going to be happy with you. And both of those were eroding that church of the time and that, those are the two things that erode our church. So the message that they were proclaiming was not a Christ-centered message. 
Now, if we were to boil the gospel down, if we were to boil salvation down, what does it talk about? It talks about the fact that God is glorious and that he's the creator and that we have rebelled against him and we are sinners. And we have suffered the consequences of that rebellion because it has affected our relationship with God. It has affected our relationship with each other. It's affected our relationship with the world. And we desperately needed a savior because we are constantly adding judgment upon ourselves. And then Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, fully God, took on humanity and became truly God and truly man. He came here, incarnated in the body of Christ. He lived a perfect and righteous life for you. He died an effectual death for all those that would trust in him. He rose victoriously from the grave. He ascended into heaven and he's coming back to reign and rule. Those are essential. But we have churches today that, and churches in this time, that distorted from that message. So the first thing he says here is the fact that their message is to be deceptive. It says that they come in and they are teaching falsely. There's a second thing I want you to consider about their dangerous deception. It's not just their message, but it's their method. Watch what it says here. It says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there were false prophets among you who secretly bring their destructive heresies. So their message is godless. Their message is not Christ-centered or cross-centered. But their the methodology is secret. They're manipulative. What they do is they come in through cunning. As, as scripture talks about, they come in as wolves clothed as sheep. We think that they're one of us, but they are godless. It's kind of like Judas was among the disciples. None of the disciples caught on the fact that Judas was a rebel. They didn't catch it. In fact, when Jesus said that one of you will betray me, they looked around and they said, is it me? Is it me? They couldn't figure out that it was Judas because on the surface, Judas looked like one of them. But underneath the surface, he was rebelling against Christ. See, this methodology, Satan is not, Satan's smart. He's never going to come up there and say, let me tell you, I'm going to teach you deception today. Go into the church, you know, the, the bulletin on the church says, deception being taught today. I mean, how many of us would go to that church? Godlessness, Christlessness will be taught today. He doesn't advertise it that way. He puts it and cloaks it in such a way that you and I may believe it. That's his method. It's secret. They're, these false teachers come among you and they're doing these things in secret. But the third thing, it's their morals. It's not just their message, it's not just their methods, it's their morals, how they live their lives. Their, their lives have deviated from the truth. But these false prophets arose among you just as those were false prophets among you who secretly bring their destructive heresies, even denying their master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. Very honestly, sensuality, emotionality, um, and here in all likelihood, it's probably talking about sexuality, is just followed in these leaders and then followed among the people. That the sexual ethic of the world and the sexual ethic of many churches is no different than the world that is out there. I know this is probably uncomfortable, but the reality is, is this. We have been um, co-opted by the world. There are probably people in this church that are having sex outside of marriage. 
there are probably people that are tempted to look at pornography as pornography has just taken a, a reign in this, in this culture. There are probably people in this church that struggle and people that you know that struggle with same sex, homosexuality, and believe that these things are right. And what ends up happening is that the slow erosion of life, what ends up happening is over and over again, the slow erosion has now gotten to a point where we actually believe what the world says is true, and it's not. And so as we hear that slow erosion over and over again, the morality of the world starts to look like the morality within the church, and it creates a major damage. And I ask you to consider, is, is your life and is my life, one finger out, three fingers point back, are our lives looking more like Christ and his word or my, more like the world? And if my life and your life is looking more like the world, then what we need to do is to go back to the message that we're holding to and the methods that we're following and is our morality following a Christ-centeredness. It, it saddens me, it really does, how many times I sit down with Christians who will say that the homosexual lifestyle is just normality. That, James, you've got to stop being so judgmental. You've got to stop being so puritanical. You've got to stop being so old-minded, James, because that is not the way it is. And they talk about evolution and that the evolution has come in and that we are more wise today. It's like more wise than God? More wise than his word? But if you do not know the word, you will find yourself captivated by the world and it will take you down a bad destruction. Now that's not to say that those that have fallen to those sins are not people that God can draw to faith and transform them. He drew me to faith and he drew you to faith if you know him. But we have to acknowledge that sin is sin if you're ever going to point them to the Savior. If they don't believe that their sin is sin, they'd have no need for a Savior. The message, their methods, their morality, but then it tells us what the motive is. Verse 3, and in their greed, they exploit you with false words. Their condemnation is from old and long ago. It's not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. It talks about greed. They, they've gotten to a place where they have liked this life, and they've gotten comfortable with this life. And as they've gotten comfortable with this life, they find themselves over and over again going after the sensuality of this world and the destruction of this world. And what is ending up happening is this, that God is saying that they are putting materialism, they're putting the worldliness as the greatest thing in their lives rather than Christ. And so what do we see? We see the message of this group is a message that is godless, Christless. Instead of thinking about their master who has bought them, they are making something other than God. They're covert, they're subversive, they're subtle, they're nice people on the surface, but they are manipulative. I want to go back to a phrase that I, I skipped over, denying their master who brought them. And it's interesting that as you consider this, these are people that sat in a church. These are people that profess Christ as their Lord and Savior. And it's interesting that the commentators um, differ on this one phrase, denying their master who bought them. 
some of them will say that this is a person who has lost the faith, who truly was a believer and has denied the faith and they've lost the faith, they've lost their salvation. And the problem with that is that other scriptures deny that. Jesus Christ says that I came here to give you eternal life and everlasting life. He says that whoever's in my palm of my hand, nobody will ever snatch out. He says in Romans, nothing will ever separate you from the love of God. In Philippians, he says that God has begun a good work in you and he will complete it. In 1 Corinthians 1, it says that who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship with his son and Jesus Christ, our Lord. Or in 1 Thessalonians 5, it says that may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus, who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. So I don't believe, very honestly, that this is a group of people who were truly saved that have lost their salvation. I believe that it was as somebody sitting in a church, just like Judas, who professed faith but never possessed faith. And a person that professes faith but doesn't possess faith will eventually, when seeds happen, they will start to erode and their lives will fail. The dangerous deception, their methods, their message, their methods, their morals, their motives. Second, I want you to consider their damning destruction, verse four through eight. It says this, for if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, and if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, he condemned them to his extinction, making them an example of what will happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensuality of the wickedness, for as a righteous man lived as a righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials." What he does here is interesting. He begins by giving you three examples of God's punishment, then he gives you two examples of God's preservation. We'll start with the three examples of God's punishment. The first one is found here with the angels that have sinned and that they are now in chains. You see it here. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment... There's a lot of confusion as to this section here. Some wonder if this point is going back to before the fall of humanity, where Satan apparently fell with a number of angels. It's talked about or alluded to in uh, Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28, and that this fall of the angels has occurred, and that some of those angels were apparently taken and put into custody until the final judgment. That's possible. There's another possibility of these angels that God did not spare is found in Genesis chapter 6. And just before the flood, apparently some angels may have taken on human bodies and then had sexual relations with women here on earth and created this group called the Nephilim at the time. 
Either way, whether it's the disobedient angels before the fall or if there were angels that really took on human nature, uh, a human body, and had sexual relations with women, which Jude, we'll talk about that in about a month, seems to allude to, if that's the case, these angels will be judged. And God judged them by putting them in this holding place, hell. It could also be, it's called Hades or Gehenna. Um, it is also called Tartarus. And it's a place, a final place, it's not the final place of resting, but it is a prison cell that they're held to till the final judgment. And what Peter's doing is he's arguing from the greater to the lesser. He's saying that if God was willing to judge angels, don't you think he'll judge false prophets? He then moves to the second judgment that he talks about here, the flood, verse 5. If he, God, did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly. So what he's saying here is this, that there, are, there was a judgment of the angels, one. There's a judgment in the flood, if you remember the universal flood, for almost a hundred years, Noah is building this ark. And as he's building this ark day after day, he is preaching to the world that judgment is coming. And people saw the ark being built, and what did they do? They laughed at it. They mocked him. They said, there is no judgment coming, and then eventually it rained. And it rained. And it rained. And the world was wiped out because of the judgment of God. The disobedient angels, the flood in Noah's day, the third judgment is found in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse six, if by turning the city of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction by making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. If you know the story of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, there's probably heavy sexuality, godlessness that is in this city. And this city has been condemned by God. And if you remember Abraham, you remember Abraham was trying to bargain God. God, if there's 50, will you save the city? If there's 40, will you save the city? If there's 20, will you save the city? If there's even 10, will you save the city? And God says, if there are even 10 in that town, I will save the city. But there weren't 10 righteous people in that town. God destroyed that town and Lot just got out. So what God talks about here is this, that there's this past destruction that you need to know, the defiant angels from the past, the doomed world in Noah's day, the decimated city of Sodom and Gomorrah. God has given you examples from the past and he promises that the false teachers will be judged as well in the future. He moves from the dangerous deception, the damning destruction, to a divine deliverance. This is where it's so hopeful. Look with me in verse 5. Now, back in verse 5, he said this. For if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved who? Noah. And seven others, his family. And what he did was he preserved them through the flood. He warned that the judgment was coming. Noah believed him. In fact, his preaching to the world, nobody else believed him, but his family believed him. And the seven of his family got into the ark with him, and they were saved. In essence, the ark looks to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Jesus, God has been telling us from the beginning of time that we will be judged. We will be judged and you will stand under a curse and you will stand under condemnation, but I will give you an ark and the ark is my son. Every sacrifice in the Old Testament pointed to his son and this ark, this beautiful ark pointed to his son that everybody that runs into that ark will be saved. And those of you that choose not to get into the ark, those of you who choose to laugh at the ark, diminish the ark, despise the ark, you may feel at peace right now, peace, peace, but there is no real peace. Well, he gave one example of Noah. Noah's preaching in the day. Now, if you know Noah's life, you sit there and say, Noah, man, you got out of the boat and you got drunk right after getting out of the boat. You don't seem to be a very righteous guy. It doesn't mean perfect. It means a person that has trusted in God. As I look in this congregation, there's not a perfect person. I'm not a perfect person. But it's the fact that we recognize our sin and we run to the Savior. We run to the ark. There's a second person that's even more questionable. It's Lot. Lot's life is a mess if you know about Lot. Because, I mean, Lot kind of tried to swindle his his uncle or his cousin uh, Abraham by taking the best property. And then Lot lived near Sodom, which was a really bad place. And then Lot moved into Sodom. And then Lot was actually a leader in Sodom. You're calling me, calling this guy righteous? Yeah, he was. Watch what it says here in verse 7. And if... If he, God, had rescued righteous Lot, not righteous in the fact that he did everything perfect, but he righteous in the fact that he stood firm in God's gospel grace. And if he rescued righteous Lot, and how you could see his righteousness, watch. And I'm asking you, I go one finger out there, and point back. Is this descriptive of your life? He was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of this world. I wonder if we have become so desensitized and normalized that the sensuality of this world has just become so second nature, it doesn't greatly distress us. It greatly distressed Lot. He saw the sensuality, he saw the wickedness of this world, and there was something within him that says, this is wrong. Verse 8, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, watch this phrase, he was tormented in his righteous soul. That word jumped out at me this week. Have I been tormented? Sometimes I think, see things that pop up on YouTube or some social medias and I'll look and I say, that is just crazy. I'll see some things and it kind of bothers me at times, but have I been tormented for people that have been caught into this lie and the deception? He, he was tormented over their lawless deeds, what he saw and what he heard. So I ask you to consider in your own heart, have you done that? Well, God promises that he will deliver them. Noah is a beacon of hope that amidst the sinful generation, you can be saved. Lot is a beacon of hope in the fact that he was rescued from depravity. And it's showcasing God's protective nature for those that are in him. The dangerous deception of the false teachers 
their message, their method, their morals, their motives. The damning destruction in the past, those defiant angels, the doomed world of Noah, the decimated city of Sodom and Gomorrah. The divine promise and divine deliverance of the righteous found in the person of Noah and Lot. And then I end with this. The discerning duty for you. The discerning duty for those that are saved. Look here in verse 10. He says, and just the first part of verse 10, it probably, you may, not, you may know this already, but chapters and verses were put in after. Uh, this is a really bad break. Uh, so that's why you'll see that it says 10A. We're just taking the first part of 10A. And then next week, I believe it's Pastor Doug will be preaching on the end of um, chapter 10, uh, verse 10. And it says this, and especially those who indulge in lust of defiling passions and despise authority. It's interesting that he boils down the characteristics of the unrighteous and the, uh, and the godless teachers. Their audacity and their self-nature and their lack of reverence and their blasphemous behaviors. They are living a lust-filled life, sexual life that is outside of God's design, outside of God's authority, outside of Christ's authority, outside of the word, outside of God's design. They are living this lust-filled life filled with defiling passions, and they're calling it true. And then, second, they despise authorities. God's authority, Christ's authority, the Word's authority. Once again, this is probably uncomfortable. It's very easy to talk about a group of people that are involved in lifestyles that we are not tempted by, but how many of us struggle with, as I said, pornography? How many of us struggle with ungodly divorce. We just break marriages, break commitments when we don't have God's standard. How many of us are involved in sexual behavior that is outside of marriage? How many of us are failing to follow God's heed? What, what he's saying here is this, that our lives in chapter one should be constant virtues that are showing Christ-likeness. Holiness matters. Holiness doesn't determine your salvation, but it is a fruit of your salvation. It is not the grounds of your salvation. Your holy living doesn't make you saved, but your holy living shows that you are saved. And so he ends with this discerning duty that you and I, brothers and sisters, we have journeyed through the waters of Second Peter here. And as we come to this, we've confronted with this unsettling reality of these false teachers. These unfalse teachers have these twin things, sensuality and rejecting authority. And I worry that maybe that's exactly what we struggle with, sensuality and rejecting God's authority. It's alarming that it was happening in the ancient culture, but it is alarming that it's happening today. And you and I need discernment. It's interesting that the word discernment, the Greek word implies acting by distinguishing, separating, and examining. Distinguishing what is happening. This is true and this is wrong. Separating ourselves from the world and examining closely. The discernment that we talk about here is not superficial. It's deep divine wisdom that you need to hear I want to be clear on this, that um, it's not telling us to separate from individuals. 
It's not telling us that we shouldn't have unchristian friends or non-Christian friends. It's not telling us that. What it's telling us is that we should not be turning to the world as our counselor. We should be counseling the world. And so what's Paul's prayer here is this. Paul's prayer is that you and I, I'm sorry, Peter's prayer for you and I is this, that we recognize and avoid false teaching that is happening in this world. You can only recognize false teaching if you know what the true teaching is. I had a friend who worked in the Secret Service, and he worked in the Secret Service, and you may know that part of the Secret Service's motto or claim is to provide protection of our currency. And the way they would train their agents is that they would take them and give them a true bill, and they would have them examine that true bill, the feel of it, the smell of it, the look of it, every little theme of what a true piece of money looks like. And when they became so convinced of what that is, then they could pick out the counterfeits very easy. Well, that's exactly what you and I need to do as we become students of the word. As we become students of the word, we can recognize and avoid the false teaching. But there's a second thing that we need to do in discernment is that we need to have the promise of God's protection. We need to remind ourselves of the fact that God has given an ark, that God gave a way out of Sodom, and that God has given you a cross. Because as you see the errors of the way and then lean on Christ, God does an amazing thing. We also need to be people of diligence and discernment and prayerfulness. How often is it that you think about the things that you're hearing and the things that you're seeing and pray for wisdom? It says in James chapter 1 um, that those who lack wisdom ask God and he will give generously to all without finding fault. We need to train ourselves in righteousness. We need to connect ourselves with Christ and we need to constantly practice his word. As you do that, in the midst of the storms, you have an anchor for your soul, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the midst of the storms, you have an anchor in the word of God as well. In the midst of the storms, you have the compass of the Holy Spirit. In the midst of the storms, you have a community of believers. In the midst of the storm, you could be fortified, even as the world seems to be so chaotic and confusing, you could be fortified if you are rooted and grounded in the love in the gospel of Christ. I'll close with this. There are only two people that sit before me this morning. It's very simple and it's very hard. There are some people that sit here this morning who already know they're not believers and they say this is just baloney. There are some that sit here today that believe that they're believers, but their lives are looking more like the world, less like the word. And that group of people, sad to say, are those that are outside the ark, outside of the gospel, outside of freedom. And if you're hearing my voice today, there's a second group of people that are here that have trusted in the ark, they run into the ark. They've trusted the son, they've run to the son. Not perfect lives, but they have trusted in him. I guess I wonder today, if today is the day that you know that, you know what, I, I think I'm one of those outsiders, then today would be the day that you could run to the cross, run to Christ, give up the false teaching of the world, their message, their motives, their methodologies, and run to the one who bled and died 
so that you could be set free. If not, I will assure you, as Peter assured these people, that judgment is coming. And God's judgment is certain, and it's swift, and it's destructive. And any of those that are not in the ark will be swept away. And any of those that are not in Christ will be swept away. I pray today that every face that I see in this congregation will be a face of those that I will see in heaven because you will bend your knee today and trust Christ as your savior today and experience the freedom and the protection and the beauty and the hope of gospel grace today. Would you pray with me? Father, as I, um, as I look at this passage and I, it burdened Peter's heart when he thought about the transfigured Christ. And he saw the transfigured Christ and it was just mind-blowing to him. I can't even imagine to see Christ who was here as human being. And he saw Christ do some amazing things and he knew that Christ was God, but then to actually see him transfigured before his eyes. And then have the awesome privilege that Peter had to become a author of God's word that you inspired him to write to other people that we study today. That must have been mind-blowing to him. As Peter was thinking about the end of his life and he was thinking about the world that is out there, he was fearful for his church. He's fearful those, for those people that the world is coming in and maybe the world has already invaded and Peter wanted to encourage them to trust in Christ, to trust in this word, to be Christ-centered and cross-centered and word-centered and spirit-filled and God-glorifying. Father, I know that that is Tim, Doug, and my passion as well, that, and the elders here, that every person here would know Christ and grow in him. So Lord, there are hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of people that can be impacted by the people that are in this congregation today. I pray that you would use them to sow seeds of gospel truth into the world. I pray that you would use them to connect with lives of people that may never come into this sanctuary today. But they can only do that by knowing your word and knowing your son and trusting your plan. So help us to do that by your grace and for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and respond by singing to and about Christ alone, the cornerstone.
Father, the word that we have heard this morning is a word that is sobering, and it is a word that is hopeful. Lord Jesus, you called us to be lights to the world that we live in. And Lord, it is only when we walk in distinction, when we walk in truth, when we walk in biblical morality, that people can see a difference in us, and that they can see that ultimately there is hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can be grounded on, on, on a solid rock in you. And so, Lord, for that, we thank you this morning. And I pray, God, that you will help us to live distinct lives in a world that so desperately needs to hear and see the truth of Christ. So, Lord, give us courage when we speak to people and give us courage when we make daily decisions to be the people of God. And Lord, to take that, the warning from this text, that God, as we see the, 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 the corruption and decay around us, God, may our hearts grieve, and then may we come to you praying for strength to live in truth, to be the light that our world desperately needs to see. God, we are your plan to make Jesus known to the world that we live in. And I pray, God, by your grace and through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we will be the lights that represent Jesus to a world that desperately needs to see and know the truth. Fill us with your grace. Bless us as we fellowship together. And then as we go, give us courage to be true followers of Jesus. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. You may be dismissed.